All right, it's time for second reading of the day. Um, this chapter is called Psychopathy. Um, I'm just going to start reading. Uh, if something bites you, it is inside of your clothes. Swahili proverb. I have urged that change will come not from overcoming the powers that be, but through their transformation. I have stated that we are fundamentally the same being looking out at the world through many sets of eyes. I have described how our perception of evil comes from a lack of understanding of what is, it is like to be another person. I have asserted that what we do unto another, we do unto ourselves, and that this is something we can feel. And I have invoked the principle of the gift, that we are all here to contribute our gifts towards something greater than ourselves, and we will never be content unless we are. In answer to all these, sometimes people bring up the counterexample of the psychopath, a distinct subset of humanity that supposedly possesses no compassion, no ability to feel love, and no shame. These people are, it is said, totally out for themselves, suffering no compunctions and ruthlessly pursuing short-term self-interest. Unfeeling, charming, charismatic, daring, and ruthless, they tend to rise to the top in business and government. To a large extent, they are the powers that be, and it would be naive to think that anything but raw force would stop them. Without pity, without conscience, without even the capacity to feel anything but a few basic proto-emotions, they are the epitome of evil. According to many researchers, they can never be cured. They don't want to be cured. They are happy the way they are. No one agrees on what causes psychopathy. One of the prominent scholars in the field, Robert Hare, says flat out that no one really has a clue. There might be some kind of genetic predisposition towards psychopathy, but this isn't even certain. The above narrative, left untouched, reintroduces the story of good versus evil into our worldview. Who knows who is a psychopath and who isn't? Psychopath becomes a scientifically sanctioned term for wicked person. The invocation of psychopathy psychopathy to validate the good versus evil narrative and all that comes along with it, such as the necessity of force as the primary means of changing the world, is misleading. Granting for a moment that there is a distinct category of irredeemable people who will call psychopaths, it is also true that the conditions under which they thrive are systemic. Traditional views, both in evolutionary biology and in economics, essentially assert that our basic nature is something quite psychopathic, that we are driven to maximize self-interest, and that traits that seem to contradict self-interest exist because, in some way, that isn't immediately obvious, they actually further it. The example of altruism as a kind of mating display comes to mind, or generosity as a means of gaining status and control over others. This paradigm is woven into our economic system. If you don't maximize your firm's self-interest, firms that do will outcompete you. Even as consumers trying to get the best deal, the incentive embodied in the price tag often contradicts the impulse to pay workers who made the item a living wage or to adopt environmentally responsible practices. Those items are more expensive. More expensive. Living in a system that rewards psychopathy, it is no accident that the psychopathic rise to the top and that the psychopathic tendencies within each of us rise to the surface. It is a mistake to blame psychopaths for our present condition. They are a result, not a cause. Under what circumstances do you become a cold, unfeeling person? Under what circumstances do you shut off your empathy? 
When do you manipulate others for your own advantage? When I notice myself doing it, usually it is when I am feeling insecure. Insecurity is built into our story of the world. The separate self in a hostile universe of competing others, random accident, and impersonal forces in nature. Insecurity is also built into the structures arising from that story. For example, the economic system, which throws us into competition to meet basic needs even when, objectively speaking, there is an abundance for all. Just living in a mass society where the faces we see have no names, where strangers meet our needs for pay, and where even our neighbors know little of our stories contributes to the same omnipresent insecurity. Our behavior in the world of separation confirms the premise of that world. It turns us into selfish utility-maximizing quasi-psychopaths. Given a cultural trait, there are always some people who embody it in extreme form, holding up a mirror so that we can recognize it in ourselves. These would be the psychopaths. There's a footnote there. A good case can be made for the existence of psychopaths in pre-modern societies. The incidence of psychopathy in these societies is apparently much lower, however, reflecting perhaps the smaller degree of separation those cultures embodied. It was not absent entirely. Some would argue that any society that has adopted domestication or even symbolic culture language has already embarked on the path of separation. See, for example, John Zerzan's Elements of Refusal. Given any cultural trait, there are always some people who embody it in extreme form, holding up a mirror so that we can recognize it in ourselves. These would be the psychopaths. Nonetheless, people with psychopathic tendencies do hold a lot of power today and will act to thwart any that challenges it. Does that mean that we will need to use force after all? I don't mean to rule it out categorically. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, I don't mean to rule it out categorically. There are circumstances where I personally might use force, for example, if someone were threatening my children. But it is dangerous to extrapolate from these situations. Before long, one is concocting ticking time bomb scenarios just to justify torture for political ends, reasoning that in some indirect way, one's children are being threatened. Furthermore, even attempting to lay out ethical principles to distinguish when violence is and is not justified perpetuates a dangerous delusion that the way we should and sometimes do make choices is to reason out guiding principles beforehand and then act on those principles in the moment. In actuality, whatever I write in this book and whatever beliefs I profess, if my children were actually being threatened, I am sure I would something else would take over. Would I fight? Maybe. Would I calmly face the man and say, you must be pretty desperate to be doing this, how can I help you? Maybe. This choice would surely depend in part on a lifetime of experiences and learning. If I have explored nonviolence deeply in theory and practice, I might be more likely to apply it successfully when fighting isn't actually the best choice. But absorbing and integrating the spirit of nonviolent action is very different from setting it up as a rule and imagining I will be able to enforce that rule upon myself when the moment arrives. To aspire to be a man of principle is a kind of separation, part of the program of control. It attempts to override the gut, the instinct, and often the heart. How many atrocities in history have been justified on one or another principle? What exactly do we mean when we say that psychopaths hold power in our society? Power in human society depends on a system of agreements within that society, 
a psychopathic corporate executive doesn't hold power because he personally has big muscles or big guns. His coercive and manipulative powers depend largely on money and the associated apparatus of corporate governance. At the bottom of it all, there are indeed muscles and guns ready to coerce those who refuse to obey the rules, but even so, he doesn't personally wield those guns. They are wielded by perfectly decent police and security personnel who are not much more psychopathic than anyone else. In other words, power in a complex society arises from story, from the system of agreements and narratives that scaffold our story. Our current story facilitates the rise of psychopathy and empowers the psychopath, because it is a st- It is story, and not force, that ultimately empowers those in power. It is on the level of story, and not force, that we must act in order to take away their power and change the system. That is why advocating force as the primary instrument of change is counterproductive. It reinforces the very same story of separation that is at the root our condition to begin with. One facet of it is the story of the good people finally rising up to topple the bad people. Let us therefore go one step further in questioning the category of the psychopath. Is it true that the psychopath is simply born without empathy? Another explanation is that the psychopath has empathy, but has shut it down at an early age, rendering him or herself unable to feel. What would happen? Why would that happen? It could be because the psychopath is the very opposite of what we think. What if the psychopath isn't someone born without feeling, but rather someone born with an extraordinary capacity for empathy and sensitivity to emotional pain? Unable to endure its intensity, he shuts it off completely. Most of us don't need to do that because the enormous pain of the world doesn't affect us quite as strongly, or shall we say, it affects us in different ways, the deeper ache perhaps, less immediate, and less raw. You can probably think of many ways our culture of child-rearing contributes to the shutdown of feeling, especially in boys. Beyond childhood, it pervades our whole society. Have you ever wondered why cool has been the preeminent turn of appropriation for the last 50 years? Why does cool equal good? Why is it desirable to be cool in our emotions, to not feel very much, not care very much, not be earnest about anything? One reason may be the urge to withdraw from a world too painful to bear. Another is that we recognize the bankruptcy of so many of the things we are given to care about. The news media offers us an endless array of trivialities and pantomimes, punctuated regularly by shocking and seemingly disconnected horrors that we learn to shrug off. Do we endure ourselves to them because we are psychopathic ourselves? Or could it be that we sense that they are a kind of a show, symptoms of a deeper disease? Maybe we hold back because the prevailing story has obscured much of what we really want to care about. Many classic psychopathic behaviors make sense within the context of the general shutdown and feeling. Inured to feeling, the psychopath nonetheless has, like all of us, a strong physiological need to feel. Therefore, he is given to impulsiveness, drama, pointlessly risky behavior that doesn't contribute to his self-interest at all. Anything powerful enough to breach the walls he has constructed will attract him. For some, it could be the intensity of infatuation. For others, murder. For others, closing the big deal. It could be the big risk, the big purchase, the big gamble. Many psychopaths are addicted to such things that, sometimes say, make them feel alive. Most academic researchers believe psychopathy is a conjunction of two independent axes of variation, lack of empathy and impulsivity. In my hypothesis, the two are closely linked. The risky behavior is an attempt to breach the lack of feeling. I must acknowledge that there is very little research supporting this hypothesis. Footnote. See, for example, emotional capacities and sensitivity in psychopaths by Willem H. H. J. Martins. Um, 
I based it on my own experience, first and foremost with myself. I was an extremely sensitive child and, due to traumatic bullying in my early teens, learned to shut off most of my feelings. Although the shutoff wasn't nearly as profound as that as a psychopath, still enabled me to do some pretty callous manipulative things. I also exhibited other psychopathic traits, such as impulsivity and a penchant for drama. I was trapped in numbness and wanted desperately to feel. Tori Amos's lyrics spoke to me. Give me life, give me pain, give me myself again. I'm going to stop at that paragraph and add. I had a similar experience. Um, I was bullied pretty bad in middle school. And um, in high school, became I made friends and I would say almost kind of maybe I could hang out with the popular kids kind of, but like just because I was so, I could, I was really good at being mean, I guess. And, um, kind of just like a real smart ass. And, um, I don't know when I got to be like 22, 21, I think I was like, I just don't, this isn't how I want to live my life. I don't want to be, and I know it's like more, I don't know at the time, it got me a lot of friends because I, I was quick with a comeback and I don't know, but I just was really mean. I And like, I could be really mean and just callous. And I did not like that about myself. So I see definitely what he's saying, I guess. Um, in addition, I have also had extensive interactions with several psychopathic individuals, at least one of whom was profoundly so, a man whose ruthlessness knew no bounds. I'll call him C. He also had other classically psychopathic traits, glib self-justification, total lack of shame, extreme impulsiveness, extraordinary charisma, and great physical courage that often crossed the line into foolhardiness. But there were a few times when I caught a fleeting glimpse of something else, a tenderness or a purity that came out of out in very convoluted ways, for example, as spontaneous, secret, and sometimes magnanimous acts of generosity or caregiving. These were distinct from the cynical devices he routinely enacted to seem like seem a swell guy. There was something else, a real human being. As far as I know, that real human being is still deeply buried, but it is in there somehow, and in there and somehow someday might awaken. Whether or not transformation is possible as a practical manner, most psychopaths might just need to be might just need to be stopped. I've gone into the speculation of the origin of psychopathy for two reasons. One is to offer an alternative to this common argument for the existence of evil. Looking at the world around us, it certainly does appear sometimes that the psychopaths are in charge. My point is that evil is a consequence, not a cause, and by going to war against it, we further the cause of war. Psychopathy is the extreme expression of something that exists in all of us and in the culture that surrounds us, it comes from a cutoff of our extended being. The second reason I have ventured into this topic is that the transformation of the psychopath has implications for the transformation of our civilization. Exploiting nature and people toward its own ends, applying a superficial charm to entrap other cultures, 
justifying everything it does with a glib story of progress, our civilization has been little short of psychopathic. On an individual level, of course, we feel empathy for the species, cultures, and ecosystems that stand in the path of development, but collectively we act only sporadically to stop it, like my friend and his occasional gestures of distorted humanity. Moreover, the question, how can we learn to feel again, affects everyone, not only those we call psychopaths, because each of us is, in our own way, cut off from the felt connection to parts of our extended selves. As it happens, I do that know that psychopaths can change, because I know one who did. Back when I was teaching at university, a 22-year-old student came into my office with a rather shocking confession. He told me, in a matter-of-fact tones, and with no evidence of boasting nor of shame, I'm the top cocaine wholesaler in blank. I make a cash income of $10,000 a week, and I spend it all. I drink Dom Perignon every day. When I go out at night, I have four bodyguards from the inner city. I've heard that the DA has a file on me, but I don't care. I told him, well, that sounds pretty good, so what's the problem? He said, I'm kind of tired of it. It doesn't do anything for me. I walk across campus, and all I see instead of faces are walking $100 bills. Every one of them is going to give $100 to their dealer, who will give it to the distributor, who will give it to me. I don't get a kick out of it anymore. I think I'm going to have to quit my job. That won't be easy, I warned. Once in that world, it is nearly impossible to leave. A thousand hands will be willing to pull back at you. It was no easy matter for F to change his job. As seems true with a lot of psychopaths, he was extraordinary in more ways than lacking empathy. He also had extraordinary creativity, charisma, and resourcefulness, as well as impatience for conventional rules and mores. In nearly every job, he very quickly bumped up against, why should I? His first job was an ice cream store, where he quickly developed the attitude of, scoop your own damn ice cream. He got a job selling mortgages, broke all sales records in his first month, and then quit. He took up photography and, despite having no experience, in a few months was earning thousands of dollars a shoot. Not just because of his salesmanship, because of his ability to get subjects to let down their, gu their habitual guard. That held his interest for a little longer, but soon he didn't see the point of that either. He wanted to focus more on the creative expression and couldn't be bothered to do the stuff one typically does to charge big money. He began working for free. During this period, F began experiencing enormous amounts of emotional and psychological pain, especially because he decided to quit drinking. He became a person with not an ordinary, but an extraordinary capacity to feel. Today he spends time staying at home with his baby son and playing with photography and other digital arts. I don't know where he will eventually turn his prodigious capacities. Our society doesn't offer ready-made positions for people like him. He had to make himself small to fit in. What would the world be like if it expanded to accommodate people like that? His situation is all of ours. Society renders us artificially small so that we may fit into box its boxes, a project in which we become accomplices. If the program of diminishment is unsuccessful, or if the energy denied cannot be contained, then society will have no place for you. It is impossible to feel fully and still be a functioning member of normal society. When we feel too much... We care too much, and the roles we are put in that grease the wheels of the machine become intolerable. Good news, as this is the very same machine that we are riding over the edge of a cliff. Recall the second reason for cool I gave above. Our recognition of the bankruptcy of the things we are given to care about. Psychopaths have this quality in huge measure. Not only are they pre-naturally cool under pressure, they are relatively unaffected by many of the mechanisms of reward and shame society uses to govern us. 
Many activists would like to be free from these constraints too, especially when the work we are doing violates many social norms. Being free from what people think is just one of the many desirable psychopathic traits, in fact. Psychopaths have many traits ordinarily associated with spiritual masters, such as non-attachment, ability to focus, being in the present moment, and courage. Indeed, one might make the case that certain famous spiritual teachers were psychopaths. Gurdjieff and Shogim Trumpa come to mind. Here's another story from Book 4 of the Lietze, translation Thomas Cleary. Lung Shu said to the physician Wen Shi, Your art is subtle. I have an ailment. Can you cure it? The physician said, I will do as you say, but first tell me about your symptoms. Lung Shu said, I am not honored when the whole village praises me, nor am I ashamed when the whole country criticizes me. I look upon life as like death, and see wealth as like poverty. I view people as like pigs, and I see myself as like others. At home I am as though at an inn. And I look at my native village as a foreign country. With these afflictions, rewards cannot encourage me. Punishments cannot threaten me. I cannot be changed by flourishing or decline, gain or loss. I cannot be moved by sorrow or happiness. Thus I cannot serve the government, associate with friends, run my household, or control my servants. What sickness is this? Is there any way to cure it? The physician had Lang Shu stand back, stand with his back to the light while he looked at his, into his chest. After a while, he said, Aha, I see your heart. It is empty. You are nearly a sage. Six of the apertures of your heart are open. One of them is closed. This may be why you think the wisdom of a sage is an ailment. It cannot be stopped by my shallow art. There is more to psychopathy than meets the eye. We can shoehorn it into our category of evil but only by ignoring some of its many dimensions. Another clue I have mentioned is the tendency for psychopaths to mellow and develop empathy with age, or could it be that whatever story that generated their kicks becomes stale? Sensing this possibility with C, my psychopathic friend, why I was appreciative of his resourcefulness and audacity in achieving his goals and would laugh along with him, I would show that I was unimpressed with the end result, betting some women, humiliating some person, or closing some deal trying to communicate to him, there's a bigger game you could be playing. While most people are not as extreme as C, who among us can say that we have never been stuck in a smaller game when we could be playing, striving for its trivial rewards that, when we achieve them, left that lingering feeling of, so what? Psychopaths are not. The winners of the game, our society, are the biggest, oops, psychopaths are not. The winners of the game of our society are the biggest dupes of all. A generation or two ago, Earth was not yet in such pain, and we had a story of ascent, progress and conquest, that absorbed much of the pain there was, which was still a lot. Today the story of technology making Earth a little better and better is tottering, and the pain grows beyond all of our attempts to deny it. For a while we might find some distraction, some inconsequential arena where we can feel Sports extravaganzas, action movies, fantasy novels, celebrity news, and the various heart-rending tragedies that appear regularly in the mainstream media all allow us to exercise our feelings and continue living life as normal. But eventually we stop caring about the trivialities, and we realize that the tragedies, too, are merely the most visible outcroppings of a deeper vein of dysfunction. Life stops making sense. We wonder, as F did at the mortgage company, what the point it is, what the point is. 
We keep slogging away, perhaps at our jobs or school out of fear of financial hardship, but at some point even that isn't enough to keep us going. The next step is medication, antidepressants to insure us to the pain, anti-anxiety meds to quell the sense that something is terribly wrong, stimulants to force us to pay, attention to things we don't care about, but all of these merely drive the life force deeper underground. There it builds, bubbling up eventually as cancer, turning against the body as autoimmunity, or exploding outward as violence. No wonder that nearly all the school shootings in the last two decades have involved psychiatric medications. Imagine what this would be if we could channel that tremendous pent-up life force towards something worth caring about. To be sure, most people do have access to things worth caring about on a personal level. There are babies to hold, shoulders to cry on, gardens to plant. Our story of the world and its systems often squeeze these simple avenues of service to the hurried margins of life. Besides, also, we also need more than just these, at least in certain stages of life. That is why we, and especially young people, hunger for a cause. Like F, we want to care. We want to find a way to open the floodgates of the heart. Such things as ending polio in Africa or internet freedom might serve for a time, but eventually they cease to excite us. The gates shut down again, maybe via burnout or compassion fatigue. For some of us, none of these causes taken in isolation can pierce the ennui. Ennui. <laughs> I don't know that word. Ennui? Uh, oh, man, that's embarrassing. Uh, the uncaring and the cool. We need to see what bigger thing we are serving. We need, to story, we need a story of the world that we really care about. I don't know what that word means. That's embarrassing. Let's see here. In you, a new, an ennui, a feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction arising from a lack of occupation or excitement. Hmm. Boredom. Oh, it means boredom. Similar to boredom. Um, well, the last part of this reminded me of this Bill Faye song. I'm going to play it because it's such a beautiful song. Um, Hold on a second. Let me get my microphone turned around here. I wonder if I could put my headphones on the microphone. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, this song.
May the all present spirit be with you. May beacons everywhere be lit to guide you. May gates be thrown open wide to receive you into the world of life. May your presence be be with you. May beacons everywhere be lit to guide you. May gates be thrown open wide to receive you into the world of light.
All right, next chapter. Um, it's called Evil. When we, re when we confront something we regard as evil, it poses a threat to the self-preservation of ego. We are so busy preserving our existence in the face of this threat that we cannot see the thing clearly at all. Chogyam Trumpa. Sometimes in Q&A sessions or internet comments, I am confronted with the accusation that I ignore the dark side of human nature. I would like to unpack that statement. What is the dark side of human nature? It certainly means more than sometimes people do some pretty awful things, because obviously if it wasn't someone's fault or in intention to cause harm, that is not very dark. Besides, anyone who has read my work knows that I am well aware of the horrible things we humans have done to each other and the planet. No, when we speak of the dark side of human nature, we are making, making a dispositionist claim that we do bad things because there is bad within us. We bear within us evil, malice, selfishness, greed, brutality, cruelty, violence, hate, and callousness. On the other hand, this is trivially true. All of these are parts of human experience. Even if circumstances bring them out, they must be there to be fraught, brought out in the first place. But if they're if it were only that, then the situationist response would be sufficient. Change the circumstances that elicit evil. No easy task. This, These circumstances include the whole edifice, edifice of our civilization, all the way down to its foundational mythology of separation and ascent. Yet still, a more beautiful world is still possible in principle. As far as I can tell, the critics are saying something more. It isn't only that evil is a product of our institutions, though certainly many of them, such as the money system, elicit evil, elicit and reward evil. The evil is prior to any of the, those. Indeed, our evil institutions were created and imposed on us by evil people. Moreover, such people are still among us today. They will not allow you to change the system. There is evil in the world, Charles. Fundamental evil. If you comfort yourself with fantasies about how it can be healed, it will simply take advantage of you. The evil must be confronted and defeated. Some of these critics externalize the evil in the form of an evil cabal or Illuminati that secretly rule the world. Others offer a more nuanced position that locates evil within themselves as well. Either way, they view it through an essentialist lens. Before I respond to this critique, I feel it necessary to establish that I am not ignorant of the worst that has happened and still is happening in this world. I know that people are talking about it when they refer to institutional and personal evil. What else is it when international creditors extract interest payments from countries where children go hungry? What else is it when women in Congo are raped with bayonets? What is it when toddlers are sent to the gallows? What is it when people are tortured using power tools and pliers? What is it when babies are raped on child pornography webcams? What is it when children are murdered before their parents' eyes as punishment for labor activism? What is it when Native American children are forcibly sent to boarding schools to lose their language and often their lives? What is it when virgin forests are leveled for profit? What is it when toxic waste is dumped into sinkholes? What is it when cities are flattened by atomic bombs essentially as for demonstration purposes? The brutality and hypocrisy on this planet know no limit. The worst things you can imagine one be human being doing to another have been, if not because of evil, then why? Any worldview that does not acknowledge the reality of these things will eventually fail us as a source of optimism, faith, and courage. Born into a world where these things happen, we all carry their imprint. Better be aware of it. For me, it is important to sometimes read about the genocide du jour, to look at photographs of tar sands ex excavation, to read about the worldwide decline in forests, 
and to touch on the individual stories of people affected by war, the prison industry, and so forth. Only then, seeing the very worst, can my optimism be authentic. It is usually the small personal cases that get under my skin. For example, there is a woman I met in California who refused to medicate her son with yet another drug that had been prescribed him because, she said, each new drug was making him sicker. He had been prescribed more than 20, and she'd had enough. So child services took her son away. He died a month later. I carry that story and a hundred like it, and hundreds like it wherever I go. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you will frequently encounter stories this horrifying and much worse. Can you peer into the abyss, abyss of despair that they offer without falling in? Can you countenance their invitation to hate, to rage, to lash out against evil without accepting that invitation? This invitation is not unrelated to the despair. By the calculus of war, evil is stronger than good. It has no compunctions. It will use any means necessary. That is where, why there is no hope within narratives in which an irredeemably evil Illuminati control all the world's governments, corporations, military, and banks. I would like to point to a different invitation than the horrifying that, that the horrifying stories offer. It is to vow, I will do anything in my power to create a world in which this no longer happens. Integrating such stories into my awareness inoculates me against the still-dominant story of the world in which things are basically as they should be. Years ago, my then-wife Patsy visited an in-home daycare with the idea of finding a place where Philip could interact with other toddlers for an hour or two a day. Neither of us believed in daycare. She walked into a scene where two women were taking care of about 12 children, ages 0 through 4, with some help from the electric babysitter, the television. One of the babies, about 9 months old, was just at the age of crawling. He couldn't crawl, though, because he was inside a small playpen, in other words, a cage. He wasn't crying. He was just sitting there. Patsy felt sorry for him, all penned up like that. Why can't he come out, she asked. The woman in charge said, look how busy we are. He gets into everything. We can't have him out with this many kids to feed, to change, to watch. I'll watch him, Patsy said. The woman agreed, and the baby could be let out for a while. So Patsy took him out of the playpen. As soon as he was set free, the baby's face lit up with delight. Finally, he got to crawl, to go here, to go there, to mix in with the other children. He was in heaven. He got to do that for 15 minutes. Then Patsy had to leave, and the baby went back into his cage. Fifteen minutes was all the baby got. When I heard that story, the, the vow welled up inside me. I will do anything in my power to create a world where babies aren't put in cages. A tiny footnote, it seems, in the litany of horrors that laces civilization, but it got under my skin. And I saw how it was connected to everything happening today, with its sacrifice of humanity for efficiency, its monetization of the intimate, and its imposition of the regime of control in every realm of life. I wondered anew. How, can, how have we arrived at a state of poverty so abject that babies must be caged? A baby in a cage is one small integral strand in our totalizing story of the world. A world in which babies are put in cages, not to mention in which they are killed with machetes, is intolerable. A good definition of hell is having no choice but to tolerate the intolerable. Our story of the world gives us no way to stop it. For evil, whether in the guise of genetic self-interest or dynamic powers, the demonic powers, is an elemental force in its universe, and there are but a puny individual in an ocean of other. And you are but a puny individual in an ocean of other. Therefore, our story of the world casts us into hell. The woman taking care of those children... Wow, that sentence was really good. 
Therefore, our story of the world casts us into hell. You are but a puny individual in an ocean of other. It's easy to feel that way. guess that's why I'm reading this book. All right. The woman taking care of those children was obviously not evil. She was harried, busy, and inhabiting a story in which everything she did was okay. The question of evil might come down to this. Is that woman on a continuum with the overly ambitious prosecutor, the venal politician, all the way to the sadistic torturer? Or is there a discontinuity that divides the ordinary flaw of human from the truly evil? Before we jump to conclusions, we should do our best to understand what kind of situation might generate even most, the most heinous acts. Perhaps what we see as evil in human nature is a conditional response to circumstances so ubiquitous and so ancient in their origin that we cannot see them as conditional. The othering that allows us to harm and the stories that contain the othering are present to some extent even among the indigenous and form the warp and woof of modern society. We do not really know what human nature would be in an environment embodying the story of interbeing. We do not know what it would be like to grow up in a society that affirmed our connectedness and cultivated its associated perceptions, feelings, thoughts, and beliefs. We do not know what the experience of life would be if we never learned self-rejection and judgment. We do not know how we would respond to conditions of abundance rather than scarcity. In Sacred Economics, I wrote, greed is a response to the perception of scarcity. If everyone has plenty, and society lives in a sharing economy that rewards generosity, then greed is senseless. Maybe we can expand to say, evil's response to the perception of separation. At a retreat one time, I asked the participants to walk around as separate selves. They were to see the sun as a mere ball of fusing hydrogen, the trees as just so much woody tissue. They were to hear the bird songs as genetically programmed mating calls and territorial markers. They were to see each other as grasping, selfish egos, and the world as a competitive arena. They were reminded that the clock was ticking. When we debriefed afterward, one of the participants said, I just started feeling angry. I wanted to hit someone and kill something. Those perceptions of separation I told people to take on. Those are the air we breathe as members of modern society. They are among the implicit beliefs of our culture. No wonder we are so angry. No wonder we are so violent. Immersed in such a world, who wouldn't be? None of this is to deny the fact that there are an awful lot of dangerous people out there. People who are so deeply conditioned to separation that it wouldn't take a miracle to change them. Such miracles happen sometimes, but I don't rec recommend relying on them in every situation. Again, if an armed intruder were threatening my children, I would probably use force to stop him, whether or not I understood that his actions came from whatever childhood trauma he had experienced. The moment of danger might not be the time to heal such trauma. On the other hand, it might. I have found, and others have discovered in situations far more extreme than I have experienced, that acting from the understanding of oneness rather than from fear can have amazing effects in tense situations. Hostility begets hostility, and trust begets trust. I cannot say it works every time, but disrupting the usual script at least allows the possibility of a different outcome. Responding to someone without fear telegraphs to them, You are not dangerous. I know you are a good person. It creates a new script for them to step into. They may decline that role, but at least the possibility is there. 
Not long ago, my teenage son held an item for his $75 to another kid. Not long, not too long ago, my teenage son sold an item of his for $75 to another kid in the neighborhood. The kid met him to get the item, but instead of paying Jimmy the money, he grabbed it and ran off. Jimmy gave chase but couldn't catch him. Another teenager, a local gang member, saw the scene and asked why Jimmy was chasing him. Jimmy told him, whereupon the other teen pulled out a gun and said, I'll help you take care of it. I know where he lives. Jimmy said, I'll get back to you on that. That evening, he told me the story and asked, What do you think I should do, Dad? I thought about it for a minute and said, Well, you are in the position of strength here, and you could probably get your money back by force. But if you go with the gun-wielding kid to visit the thief and get your item or your money, you know how the story unfolds. The kid will want revenge, either on you or more likely someone weak. The cycle of violence will continue. Instead of that, why not trans the, the situation? You Why not transform the situation? You could send the gunman a text saying, you know, if he really wants the item that much, tell him to take it as my gift. Really, it's just, it's just a thing. I explained further to Jimmy that this approach wouldn't work if he didn't already have the upper hand, because then it would seem as capitulation. But as things stood, such a message would be totally out of the ordinary. Jimmy told me he'd think about it. He didn't do as I suggested, but let me tell you what happened. Later that week, Jimmy arranged a meeting with the thief. He went accompanied by his friend M, a martial arts expert. The thief brought two of his friends along as well. He said he really wanted the item and didn't want to pay for it. His two friends started egging him and Jimmy on, suggesting that they fight for it. Jimmy, who is six feet two and has also studied martial arts, said, Forget it. I'm not going to fight you for this petty material object. You keep it. I don't want your money. The thief was taken aback. Then he said, You know, that doesn't feel right. I shouldn't have taken it like that. Let me give you some money. How about $50? That's all I can afford. Whereas each had held the other in a story of enmity, now there was humanity. Pancho Ramos Sterl runs a peace house on the border between two gang territories in what is considered one of the worst neighborhoods in Oakland, California. People tell me that more than once, local individuals have entered the house with the intention to rob or kill, only to be converted into peace workers instead. Years ago, Pancho was involved in a protest at UC Berkeley, where he was a PhD student in astrophysics. He's one of a group of students publicly fasting and protest the universities to protest the university's involvement with nuclear weapons development. After nine days, the university got tired of it and had the police come and make an example of the group of hunger strikers. Police officers broke the human chain that protesters had by interlocking their arms, and one officer lifted the slight poncho onto the air, slammed him into the concrete, and brutally handcuffed him. At this point, most of us would probably fall into the story of the habits of separation. We might respond with hatred, sarcasm, and judgment. Lacking the physical force to overcome the police, we might try to publicly humiliate them instead. If it were me, I imagine... My lifelong indignation at the injustices of this world would be projected onto the person of this police officer, finally someone to blame and to hate. The worse his persecution of me, the more grateful, gratified I would feel. The more a martyr, innocent and blameless. If it feels kind of good, doesn't it, to have someone inhumane to hate without qualification? One feels absolved, and by personifying evil, the problem of the world appears much simpler. Just get rid of these awful people. Pancho responded differently. <clears throat> the 
There's a footnote there. See Parabola Magazine. If you want to be a rebel, be kind for a more complete account. Uh, Pancho responded differently. He looked at the officer in the eye and said, with love and with no attempt to make him feel guilty, Brother, I forgive you. I am not doing this for me. I am not doing this for you. I am doing it for your children and the children of, our, of your children. The officer was momentarily befuddled. Then Pancho asked his first name and, and said, Brother, let me guess. You must like Mexican food. Awkward pause. Yes. Well, I know this place in San Francisco that has the best carnitas and fajitas and quesadillas. And I tell you what, when we get done with this and you get done with this, I'd like to, to break my fast with you. What do you say? Amazingly, the officer accepted the invitation. Footnote 2. Pancho asked that I clarify that the lunch never ended up happening. Uh, amazingly, the officer accepted the invitation. How could he not? He loosened Pancho's handcuffs and those of the other protesters. The power of Pancho's action came because he was standing in a different story and standing there so firmly that he held the space of that story for other people such as the policemen to step into as well. The Tao Te Ching says, There is no greater misfortune than underestimating your enemy. Underestimating your enemy means thinking that he is evil. Thus you destroy three quarter, your three treasures and become an enemy yourself. Verse 69, Mitchell translation. The stories of Pancho and my son illustrate this. I shudder to think of the misfortune that could have resulted from underestimating the enemy. Footnote 3. I should mention that this passage is extremely ambiguous. Many translators choose to interpret it as to interpret underestimating your enemy in the conventional way. Mitchell, drawing on a subtle, intuitive, and in my view, accurate understanding of the sense of the text, added in the sentence explaining that underestimating means thinking your enemy is evil. That sentence is not in the original, but it is implicit in the next line, which says that when armies clash, the compassionate or empathetic wins. Even if the policeman had been humiliated or punished, even if the chief had been crushed, the real enemy would have flourished. The level of hate would not have diminished in this world. I want to be absolutely clear that for words like ponchos to work, they must be absolutely authentic. If you say them and don't mean them, if you are actually saying them with the goal of showing your persecu persecutor up as the more villainous for having spurned your nonviolent loving kindness, then he will probably oblige by enacting the vil that villainy. People, especially police officers, know when they are being manipulated and they don't like it. The purpose of responding nonviolently isn't to show what a good person you are. It isn't even to be a good person. It comes rather from a simple understanding of the truth. Pancho meant what he said. He knew that the police officer didn't really want to do this. He looked at him with the unshakable knowledge. This isn't who you really are. Your soul is too beautiful to be like this. To be too beautiful to be doing this. I find that witnessing or reading about incidents like this strengthens my own story and the story of interbeing. Perhaps knowing Pancho's story, when I am in a situation that challenges my stand in the new story, I will be able to hold it more firmly too. Certainly I encounter such challenges every day. I haven't been beaten by police, but every day I see people doing things that invite me to other them, to de demonize them, and to seek to punish or manipulate them. Sometimes it seems as if entire newspapers are designed to bring the reader into that mindset. They invite us into a world of inexcusable, awful people and predispose us to act accordingly in our social relationships. A few weeks ago, I was speaking in England about the changing mythology of our culture. In describing the scientific dimension of that shift, 
I listened not only fairly, I listened not only fairly palatable paradigms, I listed, excuse me. A few weeks ago, I was speaking in England about the changing mythology of our culture. In describing the scientific dimensions of that shift, I listed not only fairly palatable paradigm shifts, such as horizontal gene transfer and ecological interdependency, but also more controversial examples like morphic fields and water memory. One of the audience, this was a small room, rolled his eyes and snorted, Oh, come on. The emotion behind his protest was palpable, and I felt it, and I felt defensive. What should I do? From the mentality of force, my response would be to try to overcome this man, and I must confess that is how I began. I spoke of my acquaintance with Rustam Roy, one of the 20th century's greatest scientists, near universally revered by material scientists as the father of that field who elucidated mechanisms for the nanostructuring and microstructuring of water. I was about to continue the scientific case for water memory that would cite the research of Gerald Pollack of the University of Washington, the character assassination campaign against Jack Wise Benefest, and so on, when I noticed the sullen expression on my challenger's face. Obviously, his rejection of water memory was ideological, not based on any reading, and thus unprepared he would have no chance to defeat me in a debate. He would only be humiliated. I would win. But so what? Would the man change his mind? Probably not. He would probably conclude that I was presenting a biased case, and he would go home and ready the entry for water memory on skeptic.com. If anything, his belief would harden. Not wanting to be an agent of humiliation, I took a different tack. I observed to the audience that there is a lot of emotional energy behind this question. Why? Obviously, I said, we are not facing a mere intellectual, intellectual disagreement. Where is the emotion coming from? It could be, sir, that you deeply care about this planet and see fantastical beliefs as a distraction from the necessity, necessary practical work that we need to do. It could be because you see the damage that, ignorant, that ignorance of science has done in areas like climate change. It could be because marvelous possibilities strike us with fear, because we live in a civilization where the marvelous possibility of human life, life has been systematically betrayed by our systems of education, parenting, religion, economics, and law. It could be because we fear the dissolution of our worldviews that major paradigm shifts entail. The man was not mollified. Before too much longer, he got up and left. But several people afterward told me that this was the most powerful moment of the afternoon. Who knows, perhaps the experience of being met and not humiliated added another featherweight of love to the man's inventory of experiences. The best victory, says Sun Tzu, is the one in which the losers don't realize they have lost. In the old story, we overcome evil and leave our enemies in the dust, wailing and gnashing their teeth. No more. Everyone is coming along for this ride. In the old story, we overcome evil and leave our enemies in the dust, wailing and gnashing their teeth. No more. Everyone is coming along for this ride. In the new story, we understand that everyone left behind impoverishes the destination. We see each human being as the possessor of a unique lens upon the world. We wonder what truth has this man been able to see from his perspective that is invisible from mine. 
We know that there must be something, that indeed each of us occupies a different place in the matrix of all being precisely in order to contribute a unique experience to our evolving totality. I do not know if Pancho's encounter with the policeman directly changed that man's life. I do know that each experience of love, along with each experience of hate, is written onto our inner situation. Each experience of love nudges us toward the story of interbeing, because it only fits into that story and defies the logic of separation. I think these stories make it clear that acting from interbeing does not equate to being a doormat, being passive, or allowing violence to happen. It certainly isn't the same as ignoring what goes on in the world. Sometimes I get criticisms from quite the opposite of the one that I'm naive, along the lines of, Charles, don't you understand? It's all good. We're all one. All these bad things are happening for our growth. Let's focus our blessings and steer steer clear of negativity. You criticize technology, but look, the internet allows me to communicate with my son in China. Everything is unfolding perfectly. I disagree with this viewpoint, or rather, I think it represents a partial understanding of metaphysical principle. Donning a rose-colored lenses and a willful ignorance of the hurting and ugliness of the world is like paving over a toxic waste dump and hoping it all goes away. On a certain level, it is true that it's all good, but that includes our perception that something is terribly wrong. It is that perception and the fire it kindles within us to create a more beautiful world that makes its all good come true. The perfection of the unfolding encompasses the imperfection. Resisting negativity is itself a form of negativity, that it affirms that doubt, fear, etc. are indeed negative. But they have an important role. Just like everything else, to deny that, to deny our fear and pain, would indeed be to ignore the dark side. Acting from interbeing doesn't deny a single fact or experience presented to us. It does require shedding our customary interpretation of those experiences. That can be difficult because those interpretations are not only culturally reinforced in ways both subtle and powerful, they are also a kind of cover for the deep wounds of separation that most of us carry. Let me say again, say that again, hate and the story of evil are a cover for the wound of separation. We need to peel away that cover and give that wound attention so that it can heal. Otherwise, we will continue to act from separation ourselves and we will create more of it unwittingly through all we do. Again, can you peer into the abyss that the more horrific atrocities open up and, and not plunge into hate? Can you be present to the gaping, painful wound those stories reveal? Can you let it hurt and let it hurt and know that having integrated that hurting, you will act with wisdom, clarity, and effectiveness far surpassing the smiting of enemies? I was about to say that acting, that to act from interbeing far from being a cowardly capitulation to evil, requires considerable courage. But then I realized that, to put it like that, hooks into a thought form of separation. It would imply that those who are not doing this lack courage, and that you should cultivate courage in order to act from love. Actually, what is happening is that our immersion in the story of inner being generates courage. Granted, there may be situations in which no nonviolent means suffice, but habituated as we are to the concept of evil, the paradigm of force, and the habit of othering, we tend to group nearly every situation into this category. The violence may be very subtle, just, for example, in concepts like holding them into account, which is usually code for shaming, humiliation, retribution. Rarely do we have the imagination, courage, or skill to act from a felt understanding of the humanity of the aggressor, or of the ingrate, or of the fool. That words like ingrate, fool, idiot, liar, crank, apologist, imperialist, racist, and so on even exist already invites us into the dispositionist belief that people are these things. Separation is built into our very language. Can you see 
There's a big long footnote there and I'm going to read it once I get down to this page. Can you see now the depth of the revolution in human beingness that we are undertaking? Can you see how powerfully our context conditions us to see evil as a fact of the world? Even if the reader is not convinced that there is no such thing as elemental, essential evil, it should at least be clear that most of the time, what we ascribe to evil actually comes from situation. Even if the reader still thinks that there is discontinuity that divides the ordinary flawed human from the truly evil, it is clear that we often categorize the former as the latter. That is extremely important, because whereas evil can be overcome only by superior force, anything else can be changed by the changing situation, the totality of the inner and outer circumstances. In large part, these circumstances consist of layer upon layer of story, going all the way down to our personal and cultural story of self. This is all the level we must this is the level we all we must work at if we are to create a different kind of society. We must become the storytellers of a new world. We tell the story not only with words, but also with the actions that spring from that story. Each such action shows us all shows all who witness it that there is another world out there, another way of seeing and being, and that you are not crazy for thinking it is there. I need to get some water. But note four. Some, therefore, advocate abolishing all humiliating labels from our speech. If we replace narcissist with person with narcissistic tendencies, an addict with person with an addiction, and liar with person with a habit of dishonesty, they think we might uphold, through our use of language, the dignity of all people, separating the behavior from the actual person. Even hero, <clears throat> even hero, they might say, should... Sorry. Even here, they might say, should be replaced with person with heroic accomplishments in order not to imply that those not so labeled are unheroic. I tend to get annoyed with crusaders for ling linguistic correctness. Excuse me. I mean people who might be inter interpreted as having crusading tendencies for a couple reasons. First, it panders to a victim mentality and encourages us to be easily offended. Second, very quickly the new terms take on an old pejorative or disparaging sense as exemplified by the evolution from moron to retard to mentally handicapped to mentally disabled to whatever the new locution may be. People can address vicious intent in all the right words. On a deeper level, we can all say the right things while doing nothing. Every act of generosity, generosity is an invitation into generosity. Every act of courage is an invitation into courage. Every act of selflessness is an invitation into selflessness. Every act of healing is an invitation into healing. I am sure you have felt this invitation upon witnessing such acts. I once read a news story about a train wreck in Peru. The travelers and tourists were stranded in the mountains, mountainous area in winter without food or heat. Many might have died that night if it weren't for the local villagers who came with food and blankets to keep them warm. These were poor villagers and they were giving their only blankets. I remember when I read that story how petty my own insecurities seemed, how tight my heart, and how tiny my generosity. I felt a kind of opening. If those indigent villagers can give their last blankets, then surely I needn't be so concerned about my financial future. I can give, and it will be okay. 
One way to interpret this story is to conclude that obviously those seemingly indigent villagers are much wealthier than I am. Let's try a new definition of wealth, the ease and freedom to be generous. Perhaps these villagers have what we have, have what we, in pursuit of money and its illusory security, are seeking to attain. For one thing, they are in community and know that they will be taken care of by, and the, by those around them. That is not so true in a money economy like ours. ours. Second, they have a deep connection to the land and a sense of belonging. Through their relationships, they know who they are. That is the kind of wealth that no amount of money can replace. We moderns, the disconnected, have a lot of rebuilding to do. People like those villagers, and anyone living from interbeing, remind us of our potential wealth and the ground truth of interbeing. Their generosity enriches us merely through witnessing it. All of us at one time or another have been fortunate enough to witness generosity and to follow feel how it opens us. Nonetheless, if you are like me, you also harbor a voice that says, what if it isn't okay? What if I give and just get taken advantage of? What if I give and have nothing left and no one takes care of me? Underneath these plaintive questions is another, even more profound. What if I am alone in the universe? This is the primal fear of the separate self. In its logic, giving is insane. If I and the world are one, then what do I then what I do to the world, I do to myself. Generosity is natural. But if I am separate from the world, there is no guarantee that anything I do will ever come back to me. Okay, I'm just going to stop here that sentence. If I and the world are one, then what I do to the world, I do to myself. Generosity is natural. That is like almost a Neville Goddard quote. Um, yeah. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is uh, pretty much Neville Goddard's philosophy. Um, since we're the same thing, it's like you're doing it to yourself if you're thinking ill of another person, quite literally. Um, anyways, keep going. Um, I have to contrive, contrive it. I have to engineer an avenue of return and assurance. If I give, I have to leverage some form of influence over the receiver, legal or emotional, to ensure I get paid back. At least I have to make some other people see my generosity so that they are impressed and I get a social return. You will recognize that this whole mindset is contrary to the spirit of gift. These questions, what if no one takes care of me? What if it's not okay? What if I'm alone in the universe? Also underlie concerns that a philosophy of oneness or interbeing ignores the dark side. When someone tries to get me to admit the existence of evil, they are speaking from something painful. I know it well because it is in me too. It is a feeling of indignation, frustration, and helplessness. There is an implacable, malevolent other out there, threaded through the entire universe, making it always a bit foolish to trust, foolish to give, and never quite safe to love. Of course, we live in a world where that has often been our experience. No wonder we take it as fundamental attribute of reality and see any denial of it as dangerously naive. But really what is happening is that we are projecting our experience onto reality, and then, based on the projection we see, reifying it further by acting within its logic. Hmm. Well said, Charles. Evil is not only a response to the perception of separation, it is also its product. How do we deal with this implacable, malevolent evil? Because force is the only language it understands, we are compelled to join in its force. As the Orwell dialogue I quote earlier shows, we become evil too. 
Human beings have been committing horrors for thousands of years in the name of conquering evil. The identity of evil keeps changing. The Turks, the infidels, the bankers, the French, the Jews, the bourgeoisie, the terrorists. But that mindset remains the same. As does the solution, force. As does the result, more evil. Must we forever battle this, the image of our own delusion? We see the results over, <clears throat> our sa- all over our sacred planet. The saying goes, the greatest tool of the devil is the belief that there is no devil. Perhaps the opposite is true. The greatest tool of evil is that the idea is there is no such thing as evil. Oh, the greatest tool of evil is the idea that there is such a thing as evil. Take a while to appreciate the subtlety of that paradox. It does not say evil does not exist. It is essentially saying that evil is a story. Does that mean it isn't real? No. Evil is as real as a poacher stripping the tusk from an elephant, Monsanto marketing GMO seeds to Indian peasants, the government ordering drone strikes on funeral processions. These are the tip of the iceberg, tiny tremors amid the convulsions racking our planet. Evil is real, no less real than any other story. What are some other stories? America is a story. Money is a story. Even the story, even the self is a story. What could be more real than yourself? Yet even the self can be realized as an illusory construct when, through grace and practice, we are freed from its story. The point is not that we should treat evil as unreal. It is that we must address it on the level of story rather than accept its own invisible premises of logic. If we do the latter, we become its creatures. If we address it on the level of story and deconstruct through words and actions the mythology it lives in, then we win without defeating. The next chapters address working on the level of story, disrupting the old and new in more detail. We have entertained a number of paradoxes. That the reason it's all good is that we are realizing it is all terribly wrong. That the devil's greatest weapon is the notion that there is such a thing as the devil. That evil comes from the perception of evil. In order to tie up a remaining loose thread in this chapter's ontology of evil, I'm afraid I will have to pile on one more paradox. It is not only evil that is both real and story. Real is both real and a story as well. Our use of the word real encodes assumptions of an objective universe that, as we saw in the chapter Science, are highly questionable. We cannot say reality is not real, because to do that, to do so smuggles in an objective backdrop in which reality is either is or is not real. I could ask, what if reality is real for you and not for me, but even then the word is smuggles the same thing? That said, I would like you for a moment to drop your habit of objectivism objectivism, and consider whether it might be possible for evil to exist in the story of separation and for it. <clears throat> that said, I would like you for a moment to drop your habit of objectivism and consider whether it might be possible for evil to exist in the story of separation and for it to not exist in the story of interbeing. I don't mean that one countenances it and one does not. I mean that in transitioning between stories, we transition between realities. How does one make that transition? That's what this whole book is about. Questioning the absolute division between subject and object leads one to ponder what the experience of evil reveals in oneself, as well as what state of being attracts one to believe or disbelieve in absolute evil. Have you ever had a personal encounter with an implacable, malevolent power, either in human form or in an altered state of consciousness? If you have, you know the overwhelmingly intense feelings of impotent rage, grief, and the fear the experience provokes. One steps into the archetype of the victim, powerless, utterly at the mercy of a merciless force. 
Until one has had this experience, it is impossible to see that such a state is latent inside each of us. The experience is a vehicle of self-discovery, conveying one to a very dark, inaccessible corner of being. As such, is it a kind of medicine? As such, it is a kind of medicine, a harsh medicine to be sure, but perhaps necessary to bring to light to the light of awareness, and therefore of healing, a primal wound. I would be curious to know people, to know what people who have been victimized by psychopaths or other malevolent powers have in common. Are they just random victims, or is there something inside of them that attracts the experience? Those who do what they call shamanic work might ask the same question about the entities that attract, attach themselves to people. Are these arbitrary predatory forces, like the impersonal forces of nature, that visit themselves upon the unlucky? Or is there an energetic hole, a missing part, a wound that perfectly complements the configuration of the entity that attaches itself? In any case, perhaps the entity is performing a service. <coughs> merging with the host into a symbiotic whole. One might ask, is the entity really a separate entity at all, or could it be an unintegrated part of the psyche? Is there even a meaningful difference between those two categories? What is a self anyways? If we are interbeings, the sum total of our relationships, then the existence of an alien othered evil is highly problematic. The idea that evil is part of a larger alchemical dance vastly complicates the usual narrative of fighting on the side of good to conquer evil. We might instead see the evil we encounter as the externalized image of something hidden within ourselves. In contrast, the concept of absolute merciless evil is closely analogous to the impersonal merciless forces of the Newtonian universe, which visit destruction randomly upon us. It is also analogous to the ruthlessly competing gene-controlled robots of Darwinian natural selection, both of these are key pillars of the old story. Does it not stand to reason that evil is all well? No, oh, does it not stand to reason that evil is as well? <clears throat> I'm going to read that again. It is analogous to the ruthlessly competing gene-controlled robots of Darwinian natural selection. Both of these are key pillars of the old story. Does it not stand to reason that evil is as well? Dreams, psychedelic experiences, and a few in waking consciousness have shown me that each time I enter a confrontation with the malevolent force, there has been something in me that complemented it. In the case of actual human beings, I was pulled in two directions, toward an interpretation of the other person in which he or she was wholly evil, and an interpretation in which his or her appalling behavior had a more innocent explanation, perhaps an explanation that encompassed my own culpability. Despite my best efforts, it was never possible to know for sure. It wasn't a matter of mere intellectual curiosity. Do I take preemptive measures? Do I treat that person as an implacable enemy? Do I interpret a seemingly conciliatory move as a, as a mere ploy? Is my feeling of shared responsibility a leverage point for the perpetrator, implying that I should adopt a pr protective self-righteousness? How do I know for sure? How to answer these questions is a matter of great planetary importance, for they are the same ones that the Palestinians and the Israelis, the Sunnis and the Shiites, the Hindus and the Muslims, must answer to decide between war and peace. I find that usually it is impossible to discover incontrovertible evidence that can decide these questions, as if they are an objective fact of the matter to ascertain. Rather, it often seems that whatever answer one chooses becomes true before the choice is made, as if the prosecutor were in a quantum superincision, as if the prosecutor 
were in a quantum superposition of states that each story what each story that we consider has a role for the other person by choosing the story we choose their role now for more complications for one what about situations in which it is naive and counterproductive to continue giving the violator the benefit of the doubt as in domestic abuse situations or in dealing with an addict addict Second, what about situations in which the other party does not accept the invitation into a peaceful role? What if they refuse to join the story of interbeing? Third, it is all well and good to say that people with certain psychology draw to themselves experiences of being persecuted or abused, and that the encounter with evil is part of a developmental process, but it seems callous and arrogant indeed to say that about toddlers abused by their parents or entire populations subjected to genocide. I mention these mostly to assure the reader that I have not overlooked the obvious. I will not, in these pages, attempt to a, th a thorough answer to these and other points. I'll just point toward how they might be addressed and leave the rest to the reader. First, it is important to distinguish between refusing a story of he is evil and accepting the other person's story. I'm not talking about capitulation here. It is certainly possible to stand in a story of interbeing and lovingly, compassionately refuse to allow the alcoholic to borrow your car. Or the wife beater to have another chance. As for the second point, it is certainly possible that even if you hold open the invitation into the new story as, as strongly as Gandhi, the other party will refuse to step into it. In that case, other circumstances will arise that eject them from your world. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, and we needn't take it upon ourselves to be the killer. Lao Tzu warns, there are always executioners, and if you take over their function, it is like trying to replace the master woodcarver you will probably cut your hand. And the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I.e., vengeance is not yours, only God's. Again, I am not saying there is never a time to fight. All things have their place in this world. The buck struggles against the wolf, and sometimes he gets away. It is just like that. Because of our ideology, we apply the mentality of fighting, struggling, and warfare far beyond its proper domain. I will not attempt to delineate principles that distinguish when fighting is justified, to decide on principle as part of the old story. And besides, principles are easy to twist into justifications for nearly any atrocity. <clears throat> I will just say that if fighting is accompanied by hate or self-pity, it is probably outside of its proper domain. The third point opens up a hoary theological question about the purpose of evil and suffering in our world. Why did the innocent suffer? Here is a paragraph from the long from a long discussion of this question in Eulogy and Redemption in the Ascent of Humanity. You can read the whole section and the whole book online. That's Charles Eisenstein's book, The Ascent of Humanity. I highly recommend it. It's really good and about twice as long as this one, but um, available for free on SoundCloud. There's somebody who read the whole book and it's on SoundCloud. That's a really good read, um, good listen, um, and I do highly recommend that. Um, we often think, so anyways, here's the quote. <clears throat> we often think of misfortune as some kind of punishment for past evil, a theme that runs through religious thought, both East and West. In the East is the idea that present suffering represents the negative karma generated through past misdeeds. In the West, we have the image of Yahweh striking down the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins, threatening Nineveh for its wickedness. However, the self-evident fact that it is often the innocent who suffer the most demands of all kinds 
suffer the most demands all kinds of theological contortions, from past lives to original sin, from future rebirth to heaven and hell. How else to explain the sweet, innocent babies in the children's cancer wards? If we are not to resort to blind, pitiless, purposeless chance, we need another explanation for the innocence of our victims. Perhaps they are great souls, meeting the huge necessity for innocent victims that our civilization has wrought. I will go, they say. I am big enough. I am ready for this experience. Humanity has been on a journey of separation for thousands of years, and every crevice of that territory must be explored. The perpetrators and the victims of all we call evil have explored the furthest reaches of separation. One might even define evil as separation, the total othering of a person, a nation, or nature, as well as the natural consequence of being cast into an alien universe separate from oneself. Recall the workshop exercise, I wanted to kill something. Significant is that the label evil is itself a profound form of othering. That is another way to see that the concept of evil is part and parcel of the phenomenon of evil. Thankfully, having explored the extremities of the territory of separation, we now have the possibility of embarking on the return journey. If evil is part of your story of the world, whether through direct experience or as fundamental ontological category, you might want to explore how that story serves you and what is hurting is the hurting that draws you to it. Because again, evidence and logic will not resolve whether evil is real. I have made extensive arguments drawing from situationist psychology, from psychopathy, from metaphysics, and from numerous anecdotes, but one could probably rebut each point, and I could rebut the rebuttals ad infinitum. How will you choose your story? How will you influence how, you, how others choose theirs? I leave you with the tale of Christian Bethelson, a final example of the redemption of evil and the disruption of stories. <clears throat> My friend Cynthia Jurs met Christian Bethelson while she was doing piecework in Liberia, which had suffered from horrendous civil war in the 1990s. A rebel leader known by the name, by the nom de guerre of General Leop Leopard, Bethelson was infamous in a milieu, <clears throat> in a milieu of massacre, child soldiery, and torture. If any human being is evil, it would have been him. He was, in his words, a man with no conscience. Eventually the war ended, and with it, with it ben Bethelson's livelihood. He had no skill other than killing. He decided to go to the nearest war, in Ivory Coast, where there might be demand for his gruesome services. On the way, his car got stuck in the mud. Who would have guessed that another car would be stuck in the mud on the same stretch of road at the same time, and that car would be bearing members of a peace group called the Everyday Gandhis? Intrigued by their conversation, he announced himself as a former rebel, rebel general. They thought they would, he thought they would vilify him, maybe even beat him. But to his astonishment, the group gathered around him, hugged him, and told him they loved him. He decided to join them and dedicated his life to peace. Let us hold out for no less a miracle planet-wide. Let us accept the invitation that it offers us into a larger sense of the possible. That is the end of that. So I'll be reading again. Next chapters, I think, are story, disruption, miracle, truth, consciousness, destiny, initiation, and then that's the end of the book. Um, but thanks for listening. Appreciate everybody listening. Thanks.